welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legallistening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. Hey, just me. Dropping in real quick to say you're about to listen to The Dissenting Opinion, written by Justice Cote with Justice Rowe concurring, in The Queen and Boudreaux. Theodora Pasca recorded this one for us as well, and we thank her so much for doing so. If you want to hear a little bit of context about the decision and hear what me, Zach, and Theodora thought about the case, head on back to episode 104. We hope you enjoy. The reasons of Justices Cote and Roe were delivered by Justice Cote, dissenting. 1. Introduction. Section 737 of the Criminal Code requires that individuals who are convicted or discharged of offenses under that statute or under the CDSA pay a minimum amount of money to the state as a victim surcharge. At issue in these appeals is whether this provision violates Section 7 and 12 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in a manner that cannot be justified under Section 1. My colleague, Justice Martin, concludes that Section 737 of the Criminal Code violates the constitutional right not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment, as set out in Section 12 of the Charter, and that this violation cannot be saved by Section 1. She would therefore declare the impugned provision invalid with immediate effect pursuant to Section 52.1 of the Constitution Act 1982. Since she allows the appeals on this basis, my colleague finds it unnecessary to address the Section 7 argument advanced by several of the appellants. I respectfully disagree. While I accept the mandatory imposition of the victim surcharge may have a particularly negative impact on impecunious offenders, I cannot accept that it amounts to treatment or punishment that is truly cruel and unusual, as that phrase has been interpreted in this court's jurisprudence. Moreover, I am of the view that the impugned provision does not deprive impecunious offenders of their security of the person, and that any deprivation of liberty that may result from the application of Section 737 of the Criminal Code accords with the principles of fundamental justice. For these reasons, I discern no violation of either Sections 12 or 7 of the Charter, and I would dismiss the appeals accordingly. 2. Overview of the Victim Surcharge Regime Section 737.1 of the Criminal Code provides that an offender who is convicted or discharged under Section 730 of an offense under that Act or the CDSA shall pay a victim surcharge in addition to any other punishment imposed on the offender. Subsection 2 sets out the framework for calculating the minimum amount of the surcharge. 30% of any fine that is imposed for a given offense, or if no fine is imposed by the sentencing judge, $100 for each offense punishable by summary conviction, and $200 for each offense punishable by indictment. Pursuant to subsection 3, however, the court has the authority to order that an offender pay a victim surcharge exceeding these minimums if it considers it appropriate in the circumstances and is satisfied that the offender is able to pay the higher amount. All amounts collected in victim surcharges are to be applied for the purpose of providing such assistance to victims of crimes as the Lieutenant Governor and Council of the Province in which the surcharge is imposed may direct from time to time. Section 737.7 Prior to 2013, the Court had the discretion to exempt an offender from the requirement to pay the surcharge if the offender established to the satisfaction of the Court that undue hardship to the offender or the dependence of the offender would result from the payment of the victim surcharge. Section 737.5 since repealed. The passage of the Increasing Offenders Accountability for Victims Act, among other things, did away with this partial discretion, thus making the surcharge mandatory in all cases. The time within which an offender will be required to pay a victim surcharge is established by the Lieutenant Governor and Council of the province in which the surcharge is imposed. Section 737.4. In Quebec, the victim surcharge is due 45 days after the date on which it was imposed, or if a fine is imposed, on the date the fine is due. In Ontario, an offender has 30 days to pay a surcharge in respect of a summary conviction offence, and 60 days in respect of an indictable offence, starting the day on which the surcharge is first imposed. Extensions are available, however. Section 737.9 and 734.3 of the Criminal Code provide that the court may change any term of its order except the amount of the surcharge 
on application by or on behalf of an offender. Section 737.8 requires that an offender be given written notice of the amount of the victim's surcharge, the manner in which it is to be paid, the time by which it must be paid, and the procedure for applying for a change in the terms of the order in accordance with Section 734.3. Section 737.9 incorporates into the provision of the victim surcharge regime most of the enforcement provisions applicable to the payment of fines. Section 734.3-7, and 736 of the Criminal Code. These provisions give the state a number of tools to compel payment by offenders who are in default, that is, who fail to pay the surcharge in full by the prescribed time, Section 734.3. For example, a province may refuse to issue or renew, or may suspend, any license or permit in relation to a defaulting offender until any outstanding surcharge is paid in full, Section 734.5a. One important enforcement tool that is not incorporated into the victim surcharge regime by Section 737.9 is the procedure for civil enforcement set out in Section 734.6 of the Criminal Code. What this effectively means is that an unpaid surcharge cannot be entered as a civil judgment against a defaulting offender. Conversely, imprisonment is a possible consequence of non-payment. Section 734.4 provides that a term of imprisonment shall be deemed to be imposed upon an offender who defaults in paying the surcharge. However, the court's authority to commit an offender to jail for non-payment is circumscribed by Section 734.71. The Crown must establish both that suspending or refusing to issue or renew a license, pursuant to 734.5, is inappropriate in the circumstances, and that the offender has refused to pay or otherwise discharge the surcharge without reasonable excuse. As this court explained in McQueen v. Blue, 2003 SCC 73 at para 61, both of these elements must be present before a defaulting offender can be committed, despite the use of the word or at the end of section 734.71bi. If the court issues a warrant for the committal of a defaulting offender, the term of imprisonment is to be set at the lesser of a. The number of days that corresponds to the outstanding amount of the surcharge, plus the costs and charges associated with committing and conveying the defaulter to prison, divided by eight times the minimum hourly wage in the applicable province at the time of default, and b. The maximum term of imprisonment the court could itself impose upon conviction for the underlying offenses. Section 734.5. Pursuant to Section 736, a province may choose to establish a fine option program through which offenders may discharge amounts owing under Section 737 by earning credits for work performed during a period not greater than two years. At the time of hearing, only some provinces, including Quebec, but not Ontario, had established such a program. The Ontario Court of Appeal, in its reasons in the Queen v. Tinker, identified, at paragraph 86, two purposes of the victim surcharge regime and of the removal of discretion in 2013. One, to rectify some of the harm done by criminal activity by raising funds for public services devoted to assisting victims of crime. And, two, to hold offenders accountable to victims of crimes and to the community by requiring a contribution by them to these funds at the time of sentencing. None of the parties dispute this characterization of the regime's purposes. I therefore agree with my colleague that this is the proper way to view the purposes of the victim surcharge and of the 2013 amendments. 3. Analysis, Section 12. Section 12 of the Charter provides that everyone has the right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. To make out a violation of Section 12, a claimant must establish two things. First, that the state measure at issue constitutes treatment or punishment, and second, that the treatment or punishment in question is cruel and unusual. The respondents accept that Section 12 is engaged in these circumstances, since the victim surcharge is, at minimum, a treatment. I agree with my colleague that the victim surcharge constitutes a punishment under Section 12. Pursuant to the test set out in the Queen v. KRJ, Section 12 is therefore engaged. This court has recognized that treatment or punishment will rise to the level of being cruel and unusual where it is so excessive as to outrage standards of decency. The Queen v. Smith, citing Miller v. The Queen, in Nur. 
Chief Justice McLaughlin explained that a sentence will offend Section 12 only where it is grossly disproportionate to the punishment that is appropriate, having regard to the nature of the offense and the circumstances of the offender. It is therefore not sufficient that a sentence be merely excessive. To be cruel and unusual, it must be disproportionate to the point of being abhorrent or intolerable, such that it is incompatible with human dignity. The Queen versus Lloyd at paragraph 24, Smith at page 1072, The Queen versus Morrissey at paragraph 26. The standard for what constitutes cruel and unusual treatment or punishment must necessarily be high. As stated by Justice Corey in Steele v. Mountain Institution at page 1417, it will only be on rare and unique occasions that a court will find a sentence so grossly disproportionate that it violates the provisions of Section 12 of the Charter. The test for determining whether a sentence is disproportionately long is very properly stringent and demanding. A lesser test would tend to trivialize the Charter. The stringency of this test is evidenced by the fact that, to date, there have been only three occasions on which this court has found that specific mandatory minimum jail sentences violate Section 12. Smith, Nur, and Lloyd. With respect to treatments or punishments relating to property rights, the Newfoundland Court of Appeal had the following to say in the Queen v. Lamb at paragraph 69. If it is only in rare and unique occasions that Section 12 can be invoked in respect of sentences affecting the personal liberties and freedoms of an individual, the protection of which is the essential reason for the Charter's existence, then it appears eminently reasonable that the occasions for bringing fines and forfeitures under Section 12's umbrella will be even more exceptional. In Nur, where the issue was the constitutionality of a three-year mandatory minimum custodial sentence for the unlawful possession of a loaded or readily loaded prohibited or restricted firearm, contrary to Section 95.1 of the Criminal Code, this court established a two-step inquiry for determining whether a statutory provision that prescribes a mandatory minimum sentence violates Section 12, at paragraph 46. First, the court must determine what would constitute a fit and proportionate sentence for the offender taking into account his or her circumstances, as well as the nature of the offense. Second, the court must consider whether the mandatory minimum sentence is grossly disproportionate to what would otherwise be a fit sentence. A court undertaking an inquiry under the framework set out in NUR need not limit itself to the individuals bringing the Section 12 challenge. It may also look to other reasonably foreseeable situations where the impugned law may apply to determine whether the requisite gross disproportionality would exist in such cases. Nur at paragraph 58. Any hypotheticals considered in this respect must nevertheless be reasonable, such that far-fetched or marginally imaginable cases cannot factor into the analysis. The Queen versus Goltz at pages 505 to 6. Simply put, the court's approach to reasonable hypotheticals must be grounded in common sense and experience, so that the reach of the law and its reasonably foreseeable impact can properly be understood. Nur at paragraph 75, see also paragraph 61. Section 737 requires that courts impose a minimum victim surcharge on all offenders who are convicted or discharged of offenses under the Criminal Code or the CDSA, regardless of the nature of the offense or the offender's financial means. Because it necessarily forms part of an offender's sentence, the surcharge can therefore be treated as a type of mandatory minimum for the purpose of this analysis. For this reason, I agree with my colleague that the ultimate question in these appeals is whether the victim's surcharge renders a sentence grossly disproportionate based on its overall impact and effects, either for the appellants before this court or for a hypothetical offender. A. A fit and proportionate sentence, either for the individual appellants or for a hypothetical impecunious offender, would most likely not include a victim surcharge. For many offenders, a victim surcharge of either $100 or $200 per offense may form part of a fit and proportionate sentence. The two objectives of the victim surcharge, to promote a sense of responsibility in offenders and to raise revenues for victim services, are closely related to two of the purposes of sentencing recognized under sections 718E and F of the Criminal Code. It is therefore incumbent on sentencing judges to consider the surcharge and the impact of the payment obligation on the offender in order to craft a sentence that is consistent with the principles of proportionality and totality, 
see The Queen vs. Cloud at Para 75. For those who do not have the means to pay, the court can account for the effect of the surcharge by adjusting other components of the sentence. For example, by reducing the length of a term of imprisonment or the amount of a fine, to ensure that the sentence is altogether fit and appropriate in the circumstances. In other words, the surcharge need not be added on top of an already proportionate sentence. Rather, it should form part of such a proportionate sentence. I would also pause at this juncture to note that Section 737.2 sets out the minimum amounts that must be imposed by way of a victim surcharge. It is therefore open to judges, in crafting an appropriate sentence, to order that the offender pay a higher amount where appropriate. In the Queen v. McHale, for example, the sentencing judge imposed a victim surcharge of $2,000 for each of the four counts of robbery of which the offender had been convicted, for a total of $8,000, after taking into account the offender's income, cost of living, prospects for rehabilitation, and work ethic. At paragraph 34. See also The Queen and Bow at paragraphs 20 and 22, and The Queen and Willet at paragraphs 87 to 92. However, some offenders who live below the poverty line cannot reasonably be expected to pay even the minimum surcharge amounts without undue hardship and personal sacrifice. Among these offenders are several of the appellants in the present cases. For example, Mr. Boudreaux was unemployed and homeless when he committed the offenses of which he was convicted, which related to breaking and entering, and the sentencing judge found that he had committed them in order to feed himself and to satisfy his marijuana dependence. The evidence indicated that his only source of income was a government aid payment of $400 per month. The Queen and Boudreaux at paragraph 107. Mr. Boudreaux had not completed high school, and his earning prospects were limited. Similarly, Mr. LaRocque was impecunious, drug-dependent, and suffered from mental health issues at the time of sentencing. He had never had a full-time job, and his housing and food expenses were paid directly from his disability benefits. He used the remaining amount, somewhere between $71 and $136 per month, to pay his other living expenses. There is nothing to suggest that their respective circumstances have since changed. As my colleague points out, many of these characteristics are shared by the other appellants. Mr. Tinker, Ms. Judge, Mr. Bondock, Mr. Mead, collectively the Tinker appellants, and Mr. Eckstein have low monthly incomes derived from social assistance. Several of them suffer from physical and cognitive disabilities, live in precarious housing, and were given relatively modest sentences for the offenses of which they were convicted. The same is true of Mr. Michael, the reasonable hypothetical offender put to this court by Mr. Eckstein. For the individuals before this court, and for Mr. Michael, I therefore accept that a fit and proportionate sentence would not include the surcharge. This is consistent with some of the decisions below. The judge sentencing Mr. Boudreaux waived the surcharge for the offenses committed before the 2013 amendments to Section 737, and the Ontario Court of Justice in Tinker would have exercised the same discretion for each of the Tinker appellants if it had been possible to do so. Indeed, if the surcharge were treated like a fine under Section 734 of the Criminal Code, it could be imposed only if the Crown established that the offender had the ability to pay it. See Section 734.2. In cases where the offender was impecunious, the Crown would be unable to do so. That said, I would note that the obligation to pay a $100 or $200 surcharge for each conviction is not exorbitant in and of itself. Many Canadians would not find payment to be particularly onerous. In fact, these amounts are considerably lower than the $1,000 minimum fine that attaches to a first conviction for impaired driving, or the $1,000 minimum fine for failing to file a tax return under the Income Tax Act. Similarly, a number of provincial offences carry with them mandatory minimum fines that can be quite hefty. In Ontario, for example, the minimum fine for driving without insurance is $5,000. Although some offenders, including several of the appellants in this case, have been ordered to pay relatively insignificant amounts in surcharges, this is attributable to the fact that they committed numerous offenses, particularly in cases where the Crown proceeded by indictment. The total amount that an offender must pay in surcharges depends both on how many offenses were committed and on whether those offenses were punishable by indictment or by summary conviction. 
that some offenders commit a number of serious offenses and therefore incur higher amounts by way of surcharges cannot on its own be determinative of our conclusion as to whether or not Section 737 of the Criminal Code violates Section 12 of the Charter. B. In cases where the mandatory victim surcharge would render an impecunious offender's sentence disproportionate, it nevertheless does not rise to the level of being grossly disproportionate. I agree with my colleague that the mandatory imposition of the victim surcharge may have negative effects for some impecunious offenders, particularly those who might spend the rest of their lives with the surcharge hanging over their heads. The surcharge can represent a significant portion of an impecunious offender's already meager income, meaning that the payment obligation cannot be satisfied without significant hardship. While some disproportionality may result, this alone is not sufficient under the Section 12 analysis. The victim surcharge can be characterized as cruel and unusual only if the effects it produces are grossly disproportionate. In my respectful view, this high bar has not been met in the present case. I base my conclusion on six interrelated considerations, which I will examine in turn. 1. Impecunious offenders can avoid the negative consequences associated with failing to pay a victim surcharge, either by participating in a fine option program or by seeking extensions of time to pay. As indicated above, an offender who fails to pay the victim surcharge within the allotted time may become subject to certain enforcement measures available to the state under the Fines and Forfeiture Division of the Criminal Code, which has been incorporated into the victim surcharge regime by Section 737-9. Section 734.5 provides that a defaulting offender can be prevented by the province in which the surcharge was imposed from participating in certain licensed activities. In addition, Sections 734.4 and 734.71 contemplate the possibility that some defaulting offenders may be imprisoned for non-payment in certain instances. That said, offenders with unpaid surcharges can avoid these enforcement measures in one of two ways. First, they may earn credits towards the payment of the surcharge by participating in a provincial fine option program established under Section 736. Second, Given that not all provinces have implemented such programs, offenders can also avoid defaulting simply by seeking extensions of time to pay. A court's authority to extend the time an offender has to pay a surcharge is conferred by sections 734.3 and 737.9 of the Criminal Code. Together, they authorize a court, or a person designated by that court, to change any term of the order except the amount of the victim's surcharge. Section 737.9 on application by or on behalf of an offender. Both the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Quebec Court of Appeal correctly noted that offenders who are unable to pay the surcharge by the date stipulated in their payment orders are entitled to reasonable extensions of time. The Ontario Court of Appeal stated that if an impoverished offender applies to the court to extend the time to pay a surcharge to which he or she is subject, the court must give the offender reasonable time to pay. At paragraph 58, See also Quebec Court of Appeal Reasons at paragraph 188. This is consistent with this court's decision in Wu, where Justice Binney stated that an offender who does not have the means to pay immediately should be given time to pay, and that the length of the extension should be what is reasonable in all circumstances. At paragraph 31, see also the Queen and Levine at paragraph 47. A careful reading of the applicable provisions makes clear that the court has a broad power to vary an order requiring the payment of a victim surcharge. First, the statute imposes no restrictions on the number of extensions an offender can seek over a given period. This means that an impecunious offender whose financial situation does not improve can conceivably avoid defaulting throughout his or her lifetime by routinely seeking extensions. By doing so, he or she will never become subject to the enforcement mechanisms set out in sections 734.5 and 734.7. Second, there is no limit to the possible length of an extension. Indeed, Wu makes clear that the time an offender is given to pay a fine or a surcharge must be reasonable in all the circumstances, at paragraph 31. There is thus nothing in the statute that would prevent a judge from granting a particularly long extension where it appears unlikely that an offender's impecuniosity will change in the foreseeable future. In the Queen and Ridley, for example, the sentencing judge imposed the minimum surcharge for each of the nine offenses of which Mr. Ridley had been convicted, for a total of $900. 
but nevertheless extended the time to pay to account for the fact that he was employed in a relatively low-paying job and had also been ordered to pay restitution installments of not less than $100 per month as part of his sentence. Because it was not reasonable to expect Mr. Ridley to be in a position to pay the surcharge before 2050, a 33-year extension was granted at paragraph 9. Third, extensions may be granted either before or after the offender defaults. What this means is that at the sentencing hearing, the judge can extend the time to pay beyond the timelines established by the lieutenant governor and council in the applicable province, as was the case, for example, in Ridley. Extensions can likewise be granted to an offender after the prescribed deadline for payment is passed, in which case the offender will no longer be in default. Given the wording of the applicable criminal code provisions, I also agree with the Ontario Court of Appeal that obtaining an extension should not be onerous or procedurally difficult, at paragraph 58. Indeed, section 734.3 says that an application for an extension may be brought either by an offender or by some other person on his or her behalf, which would include his or her lawyer, a family member, a friend, or a support person. Similarly, such an application may be adjudicated either by the court that imposes the surcharge or by a person designated by that court. Furthermore, Section 737H requires that offenders be informed in writing of, among other things, the procedure for applying for an extension of time to pay in accordance with Section 734.3. This ensures they are not left in the dark as to how to obtain such extensions. These criminal code provisions therefore encourage both flexibility and accessibility in the process for seeking extensions. To the extent that a province establishes procedures that are complex to the point of being inaccessible for many offenders, this cannot be attributed to the impugned criminal code provisions themselves, but rather to the manner in which that province implements these procedural rules and requirements. In short, offenders can avoid enforcement measures under Section 734.5 and .7 of the Criminal Code, either by participating in a fine option program or by periodically seeking extensions from the court so as never to fall into default or to be relieved of their default. 2. Impecunious offenders who are in default will never be imprisoned for their inability to pay the surcharge. In her reasons, my colleague rightly observes that only a few provinces have established fine option programs and that in any event, participation therein is not a realistic option for all offenders, whether due to serious mental illness, disability, or age, at paragraph 72. She also says that for many offenders, the task of preparing and filing a written application to a court is daunting, especially since it is a task for which a person cannot obtain state-funded legal counsel, at paragraph 73. While these difficulties do not flow from the law itself, since section 737 of the Criminal Code is not the source of this, I accept that some offenders may in practice be unable to seek an extension. However, and even if an offender does not or is unable to participate in a fine option program or obtain an extension of time to pay, the court cannot commit the offender to jail for defaulting if the reason he or she failed to pay the surcharge within the allotted time was a lack of means. Notwithstanding the fact that a term of imprisonment, determined in accordance with section 734.5, is deemed to be imposed on such an offender under Section 734.4. Recognizing this is absolutely crucial for the purposes of this appeal, and it bears reiterating in simple terms, a defaulting offender cannot actually be imprisoned under Section 737, that is, his or her liberty will not be taken away merely because of poverty. This is consistent with Section 734.71, which reads as follows. Where time has been allowed for payment of a fine, the court shall not issue a warrant of committal in default of payment of the fine, a. until the expiration of the time allowed for payment of the fine in full, and b. unless the court is satisfied, 1. that the mechanisms provided by section 734.5 and .6 are not appropriate in the circumstances, or 2. that the offender has, without reasonable excuse, refused to pay the fine or discharge it under section 736. Although the disjunctive or is used at the end of subparagraph 1b1, this court's decision in Wu clarifies that the elements listed in subparagraphs 1 and 2 must both be present before a warrant can be issued for the committal of a defaulting offender. As a result, 
a court can only order the imprisonment of an offender who actively refuses to pay or discharge the surcharge without reasonable excuse. This evidently excludes offenders who do not pay simply because they are too poor. These offenders cannot be described as actively refusing. In Chausset versus the Queen, Justice Beauclair explained that, translation, the refusal to pay contemplated by paragraph 734.71b implies the making of a choice, and in principle, impecuniosity does not leave any choice, at paragraph 69. The result is therefore that impecunious offenders who do not or cannot avoid defaulting will still not be committed to jail as long as their failure to pay can be attributed to their lack of means. In this respect, however, my colleague says that it may be difficult for judges to draw the line between an inability to pay and a refusal to pay. With respect, the fact that judges might misapply the law to a particular set of facts cannot render the victim surcharge provisions unconstitutional particularly since there is no suggestion that Section 734.7 establishes an overly vague standard that cannot properly be applied by trial judges. And to the extent that there is a perceived need for guidance on exactly where to draw the line between inability and refusal, it falls on this court to make clear to lower courts that offenders need not sacrifice their basic necessities in order to pay the surcharge. See Michael at paragraph 74, this is why the statute provides that only individuals who actually have the means to pay, and for whom non-payment is a deliberate choice, risk being committed to jail. See section 734.71 as interpreted in Wu at paragraph 61 and in Chausset at paragraph 69. Judges must therefore determine whether genuine poverty is the reason for non-payment. If it is, they cannot issue a warrant of committal and must instead grant an extension to the defaulting offender. In its intervener factum, Pivot Legal Society states that British Columbia's judges routinely sentence impoverished offenders to incarceration in immediate default of surcharge payment, at paragraph 3. This is apparently done in an effort to relieve offenders of the obligation to pay the surcharge without any practical consequences, since the term of imprisonment for non-payment is typically served concurrently with the prison sentence already imposed. Such a practice, however, is clearly inconsistent with the principles emerging from Wu, namely that an offender who cannot pay immediately must be given time to pay and that effectively substituting a financial deprivation with a deprivation of liberty thwarts Parliament's intention. An offender's inability to pay is precisely the reason why time is allowed, not a reason why it should be altogether denied. Wu at paragraph 33. To summarize this point, I can do no better than to reaffirm what this court held in Wu. Genuine inability to pay a fine, or in this case a surcharge, is not a proper basis for imprisonment. At paragraph 3, see also paragraph 61. 3. For the purpose of compelled attendance at a committal hearing, the applicable criminal code provisions seek to ensure minimal interference with the defaulting offender's physical liberty. An offender in default can be imprisoned only if, at the conclusion of a committal hearing, the Crown has proven that each of the elements in section 734.71 is present. Section 734.73 of the Criminal Code, which is incorporated into the victim surcharge regime by Section 737.9, provides that a defaulting offender may be compelled to attend a committal hearing in accordance with the provisions of Parts 16 and 18. Most of the parties submit that defaulting offenders would typically be compelled to attend their committal hearings through either a summons or a warrant of arrest issued under Section 507 of the Criminal Code. It should be noted that Section 507.4 requires a justice to compel attendance by way of a summons, which constitutes a lesser deprivation of liberty, unless there are reasonable grounds to believe that it is necessary in the public interest to issue a warrant for the arrest of the accused. Such necessity might exist, for example, where a defaulting offender does not have a fixed address for service of a summons. Moreover, a justice issuing a warrant in accordance with this provision is permitted to authorize the release of the defaulting offender from custody after arrest by making an endorsement on the warrant. Section 507.6. Where the arrest warrant is so endorsed, an officer in charge may release the defaulting offender after he or she has been taken into custody in accordance with Section 499 of the Criminal Code. The Ontario Court of Appeal also suggested the possibility that a defaulting offender could be arrested without a warrant under Section 495.1 of the Criminal Code, at paragraph 113. 
assuming, without deciding, that warrantless arrest can properly be used as a means to compel attendance in these circumstances, I note that this can only occur if the peace officer has reasonable grounds to believe that it is in the public interest to arrest the person and that the person will fail to attend court, in accordance with Section 495.2. In determining whether arrest is in the public interest, the peace officer must consider whether arrest is necessary to establish the identity of the person, to secure or preserve evidence, or to prevent the continuation of the offense or the commission of future offenses. Given that non-payment of a victim surcharge is not an offense, it is difficult to imagine instances where the public interest would justify the warrantless arrest of a defaulting offender pending a committal hearing. Moreover, the detention of a person arrested without a warrant can continue only if there are reasonable grounds to believe that continued detention is in the public interest or will serve the purpose of ensuring attendance at court. See sections 497 and 498 of the Criminal Code. If a defaulting offender is arrested and not released, Section 503.1 of the Criminal Code requires that he or she be taken before a justice within 24 hours or otherwise as soon as possible. At this stage, the justice will hold a hearing to determine whether the offender should be released pending the committal hearing, in accordance with Section 515 of the Criminal Code. In the intervening time, both the arresting officer and the officer in charge have the authority to release the arrestee either with or without conditions under Section 503. At the committal hearing, the Crown bears the burden of demonstrating that continued interim detention is justified, and if it fails to discharge this burden, the Justice will be obliged to release the defaulting offender. Section 515.10 sets out the three grounds on which detention can be justified. A. To ensure attendance, B. To protect public safety, and C. To maintain confidence in the administration of justice. I observe that these factors would not typically weigh in favor of detention pending a defaulting offender's committal hearing, since failure to pay a victim surcharge is not an offense. In any event, this court in the Queen and Antic affirmed that an unconditional release on an undertaking is the default position when granting release, at paragraph 67. Together, these provisions indicate that the likelihood of an impecunious offender being arrested and detained pending a committal hearing is low. Continued detention is reserved for those instances where it is necessary to ensure that the accused will attend to explain the reason for non-payment. Furthermore, there is no evidence in the record to suggest that impecunious offenders are in fact being detained unnecessarily pending their committal hearings on a routine basis. Where service of a summons is proved or a promise to appear has been confirmed and the offender still fails to attend court, or where a summons cannot be served because the offender is evading service, a justice may issue an arrest warrant, Section 512.2 of the Criminal Code, and again may authorize the offender's release after arrest by making an endorsement on the warrant under Section 507.6. As a final point, the Attorney General of Ontario has indicated that a committal hearing can take place ex parte, but only if the defaulting offender consents or is found to have absconded as provided for in sections 537 and 544 of the Criminal Code. Compelled attendance at a committal hearing will necessarily deprive a defaulting offender of his or her liberty interest to some degree. As the foregoing indicates, however, the scheme is designed to protect such an offender from pre-hearing detention, except where there is a substantial reason for it. This serves to minimize the deleterious effects of the operation of the victim surcharge regime for offenders who are in default. 4. Civil enforcement mechanisms cannot be used to collect outstanding amounts owing in victim surcharges. While the enforcement mechanisms set out in sections 734.5 and .7 of the Criminal Code can be exercised against defaulting offenders, civil enforcement under 734.6 is not available, since the latter provision is not incorporated into the victim surcharge regime by section 737.9 or otherwise. What this means is that the Attorney General of Canada or of a province lacks the statutory authority to enter as a judgment in a civil court any amounts owing by way of surcharges, and hence that civil remedies cannot be exercised as a means of recovering unpaid surcharges from offenders. This feature distinguishes the surcharge from regular fines. While an unpaid fine can attract the same financial consequences as an ordinary debt, an unpaid surcharge cannot.
I would also note that some provinces have adopted the practice of employing collection efforts, whether internal to government or external, against defaulting offenders. Such a practice, however, is neither required nor authorized by the Criminal Code. It is therefore not an effect of the impugned surcharge provisions. 5. There is insufficient evidence to conclude that the stress caused by the mandatory application of the victim surcharge to impecunious offenders is severe enough to make the punishment imposed under Section 737 cruel and unusual. Several of the appellants also submit that the inability to pay a victim surcharge and the consequences of non-payment cause stress to impecunious offenders and that this contributes to the disproportionality of the surcharge. I agree that some degree of stress will likely arise in these circumstances. Indeed, we should expect that all punishments, including the victim surcharge, will be stressful for the person subject to them. Many individuals will likewise find the obligation to pay ordinary debts stressful. For the purpose of Section 12 of the Charter, however, the key question is whether the psychological stress associated with the inability to pay a surcharge is so severe that it makes the imposition of the surcharge on impecunious offenders cruel and unusual. In my respectful view, there is nothing in the record to suggest that this is so. In its written submissions, the Attorney General of Ontario observes that the appellants have not adduced any evidence to support the existence of severe stress associated with the threat or possibility of imprisonment, and adds in this respect that any such stress would not be caused by Section 737, which does not truly threaten imprisonment for those who cannot pay. Similarly, there is no evidence that impecunious offenders forego spending on the necessaries of life to pay the surcharge, thereby compromising their health, welfare, and safety, that non-payment attracts a significant degree of social stigma, or that the requirement to pay the surcharge has significant negative effects on rehabilitation. None of the first instance courts in Tinker, Eckstein, or Boudreau made any such factual findings, and the Summary Conviction Appeals Court in La Roque specifically held that there was no evidence to support the findings of the sentencing judge in that case that the victim surcharge, if left unpaid as expected, would create an ongoing stress for the accused, such as to render it cruel and unusual punishment, at paragraph 76. Although there is no dispute that the victim surcharge will most probably produce psychological stress for some impecunious offenders that would not be felt by offenders with greater financial means, there must be a factual basis for concluding that this stress is severe enough to support a Section 12 charter violation. With respect, neither the record before this court nor common sense provides a sufficient basis for such a conclusion. See La Roque, Ontario Superior Court of Justice, at paragraph 72 to 76. See also Tapetat at paragraph 34. As explained by Justice Corey in McKay v. Manitoba at pages 361 to 362. Charter cases will frequently be concerned with concepts and principles that are of fundamental importance to Canadian society. For example, issues pertaining to freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and the right to life, liberty, and the security of the individual will have to be considered by the courts. Decisions on these issues must be carefully considered, as they will profoundly affect the lives of Canadians and all residents of Canada. In light of the importance and the impact that these decisions may have in the future, the courts have every right to expect and indeed to insist upon the careful preparation and presentation of a factual basis in most charter cases. The relevant facts put forward may cover a wide spectrum dealing with scientific, social, economic, and political aspects. Often, expert opinion as to the future impact of the impugned legislation and the result of the possible decisions pertaining to it may be of great assistance to the courts. Charter decisions should not and must not be made in a factual vacuum. To attempt to do so would trivialize the Charter and inevitably result in ill-considered opinions. The presentation of facts is not a mere technicality. Rather, it is essential to a proper consideration of Charter issues. Charter decisions cannot be based upon the unsupported hypotheses of enthusiastic counsel. 6. The fact that the victim surcharge might, in some cases, frustrate attempts at rehabilitation and reintegration does not make the punishment imposed under Section 737 cruel and unusual. As a final point, it is said that the mandatory imposition of the victim surcharge impedes the rehabilitation and reintegration of impecunious offenders. 
since their inability to pay can keep them tethered to the criminal justice system indefinitely and prevent them from seeking a pardon. Rehabilitation is undoubtedly an important principle in the criminal code's sentencing regime. See Section 718D. However, it is not the only one. And while the victim surcharge does not necessarily promote efforts at rehabilitation because it is aimed at different sentencing objectives, the same can be said about other criminal sanctions that have been imposed on the appellants in these cases, and that continue to be imposed on impecunious persons daily. This point was made by the Summary Conviction Appeals Court in La Roque at paragraph 95. What was at issue in Michael and another case concerning the constitutionality of the victim surcharge, the Queen and Cloud, was the cruel and unusual nature of the victim surcharge, when in both instances these offenders were placed on lengthy probation orders as part of their sentences. The impact of that order for an offender like Mr. Michael, who, as described in Michael, engages largely in nuisance-type behavior, is significant. Anytime he commits an offense while bound by that order, he will in all likelihood be sentenced to further imprisonment than otherwise warranted by his conduct, because he will have violated a court order and hence face sentencing for that offense too. Arguably, every month, an offender like Mr. LaRock or offenders like Mr. Michael and Mr. Cloud are on probation, creates a real prospect of further incarceration, on the assumption accepted in those cases in considering the victim surcharge, that is, their circumstances will not change. This assumption must then hold for the circumstances leading to their offending behavior, rendering the prospect of further incarceration as a result of the probation order a live one. The prospect of further incarceration is surely more psychologically stressful than the consequences which may flow from the imposition of the victim surcharge. And yet, lengthy probation orders are nevertheless imposed on these offenders and others like them to comply with legal principles and precedents, notwithstanding the stress that may result to the offender. I would add this. If the principles by which courts sentence offenders in Canada are premised on the notion that individuals generally have the capacity to move beyond their criminal past and improve their lives for the better, and if rehabilitation is a fundamental purpose of sentencing, then it is counterproductive for courts to treat some impecunious offenders as being incapable of ever lifting themselves out of a cycle of poverty and criminality by finding that they will never be able to pay the surcharge. While it is likely that some will face great difficulty in doing so, Justice Binney in Wu directed Canadian courts not simply to accept that the circumstances of the offender at the date of sentencing will necessarily continue into the future, at paragraph 31. Not only are findings to this effect pessimistic in nature, but they also undermine the very basis for the principle of rehabilitation. It seems correct to say that the non-payment of a victim surcharge renders a person ineligible to seek a record suspension under Section 4.1 of the Criminal Records Act. That provision states that an offender may apply for a record suspension only if a certain period of time has elapsed after the expiration according to law of any sentence. The term sentence presumably captures the payment of a victim surcharge. It must be noted, however, that the Criminal Code authorizes the Governor and Council to grant conditional pardons, section 748, and to order the remission of fines and other pecuniary penalties, section 748.1, through the royal prerogative of mercy. Although a conditional pardon will not be granted unless, among other things, there is substantial evidence of undue hardship out of proportion to the nature of the offense and more severe than for other individuals in similar situations, such a pardon nevertheless has the same effect as a record suspension under the Criminal Records Act. A remission order does not have that same effect, but instead eliminates the obligation to pay a victim surcharge, and thus allows an otherwise eligible offender to apply for a record suspension under Section 3.1 of the Criminal Records Act. Therefore, even though conditional pardons and remission orders are not perfect alternatives, an offender who is ineligible for a traditional record suspension due solely to the inability to pay the victim surcharge is not left without recourse. Moreover, an application to the parole board for a record suspension costs $631, a fee that the parole board will not waive even for impecunious applicants. In addition to this fee, individuals applying for a record suspension under the Criminal Records Act are responsible for paying any costs associated with obtaining fingerprints, a copy of their criminal record, police checks, and the court documents that are required. For offenders whose sole barrier to seeking a record suspension is an outstanding victim surcharge, 
The fees associated with making such an application may be more onerous than paying the surcharge itself. Indeed, the cost of the application on its own exceeds the minimum surcharge that would be imposed on an individual who was found guilty of six summary conviction offenses or three indictable offenses. Although the victim's surcharge may not be particularly conducive to attempts by some offenders to achieve rehabilitation and reintegration into society, my view is that this alone is not sufficient to meet the high bar for establishing a Section 12 charter violation. C. Section 737, therefore, does not impose cruel and unusual punishment, either on the offenders before this court or on the reasonable hypothetical offender. There is no dispute that the surcharge will create some degree of hardship for offenders. As a punishment, this is to be expected. I also accept that impecunious offenders may experience such hardship in more acute ways. For many, it may be years before they will be in a position to pay off the surcharge and not without a substantial degree of sacrifice and hardship. Others may never be in a position to make payment in full within their lifetimes, given the unfortunate state of their financial circumstances or health. For these offenders, the effects of the surcharge are, at a minimum, frustrating. The Attorney General of Ontario conceded as much during the oral hearing. Whether the positive aspects of the victim surcharge outweigh the negative effects it may produce is debatable. Indeed, Section 737 is currently the subject of a debate in Parliament under Bill C-75. What matters under the Section 12 analysis, however, is whether the negative effects associated with the mandatory victim surcharge rise to the level of gross disproportionality in relation to impecunious offenders. Can it be said that these effects are abhorrent, intolerable, or so excessive as to outrage standards of decency? In my view, the answer is no. While I accept that a proportionate sentence for impecunious offenders would not include a victim surcharge, there are a number of components to the regime set out in Section 737 of the Criminal Code that attenuate the particularly severe impact the surcharge may have on an offender who is simply not able to pay. In particular, as explained above, Offenders who are unable to pay the surcharge within the prescribed time will not be subject to the enforcement mechanisms set out in sections 734.5 and 0.7 if they either participate in a fine option program or seek an extension of time to pay. Once an extension is granted, and it must be granted if the offender cannot pay by the prescribed time due to a lack of means, then the offender will no longer be in default. An offender will not be imprisoned if he or she defaults due to poverty. Only offenders who have the means to pay but who choose not to risk being imprisoned following a committal hearing. While it is possible that a defaulting offender might be detained for some period of time ahead of a committal hearing, the scheme for compelling attendance set out in Part 16 of the Criminal Code ensures that a deprivation of liberty in these circumstances will occur only where it is necessary in the public interest. Such cases will likely be very rare, especially given that non-payment is not a criminal offense. A province cannot enter an unpaid surcharge order as a civil judgment. Therefore, an offender who defaults in paying a surcharge will not face the same financial consequences as an offender who defaults in paying a fine, or indeed in paying any ordinary debt. There is insufficient evidence to support the proposition that the inability to pay a surcharge causes psychological stress severe enough to make the punishment imposed under Section 737 cruel and unusual. The victim surcharge does not interfere with the rehabilitation of impecunious offenders to such a degree that it amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. In Smith, this court identifies several forms of treatments and punishments that will always violate Section 12. The lash, the lobotomization of certain dangerous offenders, and the castration of sexual offenders at pages 1073 to 74. Similarly, in Nur and Lloyd, certain mandatory minimum custodial sentences were considered to be grossly disproportionate and were therefore struck down as cruel and unusual. Bearing in mind the considerations listed above, my view is that the requirement that all offenders pay a surcharge of only $100 or $200 per offense, a surcharge which cannot be enforced against the liberty or property of an offender who is simply too poor to pay, does not rise to this level. I would also point out that a finding of unconstitutionality with respect to the victim's surcharge may have the effect of calling into question the constitutionality of other mandatory fines imposed on offenders who may or may not have the means to pay. As observed by Justice Schrager in his reasons in the Quebec Court of Appeal Reasons at paragraph 227, 
Minimum sentences are not per se contrary to Section 12 of the Charter. However, the reasoning of those who would rule the minimum victim surcharge as cruel and unusual might well lead to the result that all minimum fines are cruel and unusual by the mere fact that many offenders are poor. Such a result would, in my view, usurp the role of Parliament in determining policy in criminal sentencing matters. Given the foregoing, I therefore disagree with my colleague that the appellants have met the high burden of establishing that Section 737 of the Criminal Code infringes Section 12 in respect of impecunious offenders, either the individuals before this court or the reasonable hypothetical. 4. Analysis. Section 7. I turn now to the question of whether Section 737 of the Criminal Code violates Section 7 of the Charter, which reads as follows. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. In order to make out a Section 7 violation, a claimant must therefore establish two things. First, that the impugned law or state action deprives him or her of the right to life, liberty, or security of the person. And second, that any such deprivation does not accord with the principles of fundamental justice. Carter v. Canada, paragraph 55. Canada v. Bedford, paragraph 57. The Tinker appellants say that this is the case for section 737 of the Criminal Code. In their submission, the mandatory victim surcharge deprives them of their right to liberty and security of the person in a manner that is overbroad and thus contrary to section 7 of the Charter. A. Only the Tinker Appellant's liberty interest is engaged, insofar as defaulting offenders can be compelled to attend a committal hearing. The victim surcharge regime does not engage their security of the person interest. The Tinker Appellants submit that the operation of Section 737 of the Criminal Code engages their right to liberty in two ways. Their first argument on this point is that the availability of imprisonment as a consequence of non-payment pursuant to sections 734.4 and .7, can deprive impecunious offenders of their physical liberty. This submission can be easily rejected. As explained at length above, offenders will not be imprisoned if they fail to pay the surcharge because they are financially unable to do so. Second, the Tinker appellants submit that impecunious offenders who are in default of payment will suffer a deprivation of their physical liberty if and when they are compelled to attend a committal hearing. The Ontario Court of Appeal held that the possibility of being compelled to appear at a committal hearing, whether by the issuance of a summons or by pre-hearing arrest and detention, deprives the Tinker appellants of liberty, at paragraph 70. The respondent, Attorney General of Ontario, concedes this at paragraph 74 and 82 of her written submissions. I agree, and would therefore conclude that section 737 of the Criminal Code engages the Tinker Appellant's liberty interest only insofar as non-payment of the victim surcharge triggers the possibility of being compelled to attend a committal hearing. However, I cannot accept the Tinker Appellant's submission that the impugned provision engages their security interest due to the stress caused by a. having a significant fine imposed which the person has no ability to pay, b. being threatened with imprisonment for non-payment, c. having to request extensions of time in order to avoid being arrested or imprisoned, and d. knowing that one will have to continue making such requests on an ongoing basis in order to remain out of prison. State-imposed psychological stress may amount to interference with the right to security of the person, but only where it has a serious and profound effect on a person's psychological integrity. New Brunswick versus G.J., 1999-3-SCR-46 at paragraph 60, Blanco v. British Columbia, 2002-SCR-307 at paragraph 57, as observed by Chief Justice Lemaire in G.J. It is clear that the right to security of the person does not protect the individual from the ordinary stresses and anxieties that a person of reasonable sensibility would suffer as a result of government action. If the right were interpreted with such broad sweep, Countless government initiatives could be challenged on the ground that they infringe the right to security of the person, massively expanding the scope of judicial review and, in the process, trivializing what it means for a right to be constitutionally protected, at paragraph 59. Accepting that the mandatory imposition of the surcharge can conceivably be stressful for some offenders of modest means, 
The question for the purpose of Section 7 is whether the stress felt by such offenders is serious enough to engage their security interest. As observed by Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Major in Chawouli v. Quebec, 2005 SCC 35, the task of the courts on Section 7 issues as on others is to evaluate the issue in the light, not just of common sense or theory, but of the evidence, at paragraph 150. This is consistent with the perspective adopted by the Tinker appellants themselves. The question is not whether the surcharge may have some theoretical impact from an objective perspective. The question is whether it is having a real impact from a subjective perspective of the actual indigent persons who are being forced to pay. Respectfully, neither common sense nor the evidence provides a basis on which I can conclude that the actual stress that impecunious offenders may experience as a result of having to pay a surcharge, albeit in circumstances where non-payment due to poverty will not result in a deprivation of either liberty or property, is serious enough that it exceeds the requisite threshold. C. Blanco at paragraph 57, G.J. at paragraph 59. My view is thus that the Tinker appellants have not demonstrated that Section 7 is engaged due to the stress that may be associated with the imposition of the surcharge. B. The deprivation of liberty associated with being compelled to attend a committal hearing accords with the principles of fundamental justice. The next stage in the Section 7 framework requires the court to determine whether the deprivation of life, liberty, or security of the person accords with the principles of fundamental justice. The principle of fundamental justice identified by the Tinker appellants is overbreath, which deals with instances where the effect of a law on a person's right to life, liberty, and security is rationally connected to the law's purpose in some respects, but not all. Bedford at paragraphs 101 and 112 to 113. Such a law will be unconstitutional to the extent that it overreaches in its effects in that it deprives some persons of their right to life, liberty, and security of the person in a manner unconnected to its objective in some, though not all, respects. This is key. For a law to be unconstitutional under Section 7 based on the overbreath principle, it is not enough to simply say that there is an absence of any rational connection between the law's purpose and some of its general effects. In other words, a law is not overbroad just because its scope is broader than necessary to carry out its purpose. To succeed on this basis, a claimant must instead establish that the law interferes with the right to life, liberty, or security of the person in some ways that are unconnected to its objective. Carter at paragraph 85. What matters, therefore, is the relationship between the law's purpose and the manner in which it deprives a person of life, liberty, or security. Having found that Section 737 of the Criminal Code interferes with an offender's liberty interest, but only to the extent that the offender can be compelled to attend a committal hearing after defaulting, the question is therefore whether this deprivation of liberty is rationally connected to the purpose underlying the impugned provision in cases involving offenders who simply lack the means to pay. Does that deprivation of liberty go further than necessary to achieve the law's purpose, such that it is overbroad in relation to the impecunious tinker appellants? I agree with the Ontario Court of Appeal that this question should be answered in the negative. The end result of a committal hearing is not to collect on an outstanding surcharge payment, but to determine whether a warrant for the defaulting offender's committal should be issued by inquiring into the offender's excuse for refusing to pay, at paragraph 104. It is therefore necessary to compel a defaulting offender to attend a committal hearing, which will necessarily entail some deprivation of personal liberty, in order to determine whether the offender has the funds to pay the victim's surcharge and to give him or her an opportunity to explain or provide a reasonable excuse for non-payment. By requiring the offender to account to the state in this fashion, the process can also serve as a reminder of the offender's accountability to victims of crime. Ontario Court of Appeal reasons at paragraph 103. My conclusion is, therefore, that the deprivation of liberty associated with committal hearings under Section 737 is not overbroad in relation to impecunious offenders. It has at least some rational connection to the dual purposes of the surcharge regime, both for offenders who have refused to pay without reasonable excuse and for those who have not paid simply due to poverty. 
For this reason, I discern no violation of Section 7. 5. Conclusion. Having found that Section 737 of the Criminal Code does not violate the constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment, Section 12 of the Charter, or the right not to be deprived of life, liberty, and security of the person except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, Section 7 of the Charter, I am of the view that the appeals should be dismissed. Therefore, I dissent. Appeals allowed. Justices Cote and Roe dissenting. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.